pray for us as we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, you are a good God who loves us, who cares for us, who sent his one and only son to die for us. Lord, as we pray, we pray that as we look at your word today that you would open our hearts, open our minds to what you have to say to us and that we would leave here refreshed, willing and able to serve and glorify you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Ian. Uh, I'm not the pastor here. Andrew is. I'm just a ring-in for the next two weeks. Uh, But myself uh, and Erin and my boys, we've been a part of Christ Sanctuary for about 19 months now. I work with TSCF, which stands for Tertiary Students Christian Fellowship. Basically, I teach the Bible to students. There's a few of them among you. Watch out for them. They're infiltrating. Uh, But the great thing is that when, when... uh, I get the opportunity to preach. I just kind of, kind of just research something that I've already been thinking about. So it's a good opportunity for me just to go, oh, you know, I've been thinking about that already. I'll just spend some more time thinking about it. You know, it's such a privilege to be able to do that, to open God's word with you uh, and have an excuse to kind of look deeply into what God has to say. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at two different psalms and we're going to see how these psalms can be understood Christologically. Now, that's a big fancy word. It just means how we can understand them in, the, in light of Jesus, in light of what he has done. In fact, all we're going to do is have a look at the Psalms and then see what the earliest Christian witness had to say about those Psalms. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 22. We're going to try to understand it within its own context. And then we're going to have a look at the New Testament and see what the New Testament writers had to say about Psalm 22, and in particular just one passage. Uh, The principle that I want to imply, which is kind of a a biblical principle that's been around for kind of the very start of the Bible, is that we want to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. We want to let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament because if the New Testament is God's word then it's probably going to do a better job at interpreting the Old Testament than I am. So we're going to just let the, Old, let the New Testament kind of speak for itself. So hopefully you've got Psalm 22 there. I'm going to read out the whole lot. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so, so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfil my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Now the psalm, you know, the psalms are like are like any poetry. You know, it's it's a place for expression, a place to vent frustration, to kind of pour out your emotion. It's a place for despair. It's a place for joy. It's a place for praise. And it seems like we're getting all of those emotions here in this one psalm. It's jam-packed with emotion. Right off the bat, what do we have? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the, gr- the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet there's real frustration here, isn't there? David feels like God is far off, that God has abandoned him and basically left him to decay. Poetry is designed to draw us in. That's what the Psalms do. They, they draw us in and they want to make us say, yeah, I know how that guy feels. I feel that way sometimes too. You know, have you ever felt that way, the way that David feels? Have you ever felt that God has abandoned you? Like God is just distant? You know, I would say there was a period of time last year where I really felt that, felt the way that David felt. I felt abandoned by God. You know, I found myself asking, God, why have you brought us here? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? It feels like you're, you're just so far away. And I'm sure there have been periods in your life where you've asked the same question. And David goes on though, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted you, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. 
on David's mind there's a disconnect between his theology and his practice. I know, God, that you're trustworthy. I know all about you. I know who you are. I know that you should be glorified. I know that you should be praised. I know all the stories about all the people that you've helped out, all the people that you've saved. I know all of that. But it's just not happening for me. I'm not seeing your faithfulness. I'm not seeing you actually there. I don't see you caring for me. You see the disconnect in David's mind. Now, I know this stuff about God, but I'm just not experiencing it. And David is obviously going through some pretty hard times. Things are pretty bad, and it seems there is no respite for him. See, he knows that if God is enthroned on high, if he is the one that is trustworthy, then why am I going through this? If we believe in God's sovereignty, then we not only believe that God saves us out of these situations, but also in some sense that God puts us in these situations as well. But why is David's question. If you're in control, why would you do that? Why, Why am I in this situation? David goes further on to explain. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Now, not the funnest of times. That doesn't really sound that great for David, does it? He calls himself a worm. Have you ever seen a worm? I have a worm bin at home, and uh, worm farm, and I think worms are pretty weird. What other animal literally eats anything like you give them kind of the dust from the vacuum bag and they love it it's kind of like ooh, dog hair my favorite you know, i hate worms boaz uh my son he loves them though you know, he puts on the gumboots as soon as he heads outside dad can i get a worm he hasn't quite got the knack of not killing them in the first five seconds yet uh, but he does he does love them and he kind of like you know kind of shows you his worms that are in about 15 different pieces But the picture we're getting here is not nice. He goes on, verse 9, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Kind of sounds like an accusation towards God, doesn't it? You have created me for this. You made me trust in you and for what? So I could go through this torment and pain. Why have you created me, Lord? Why have you created me? Is it just for this situation? Why? But verse 11 has a huge shift. David moves from accusing God to crying out in help. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. David cries out to help from God. Slowly his theology and his practice are coming together. If you are the one enthroned on high, then you are the only one that can help. You know, there is no one else. And in those times where we just cast our helplessness upon God, whether it's from relief of being able to just express ourselves or whether it's from the comfort that God God brings, it seems that those times, something just changes in us. 
And then he goes back and he, David recounts further his situation and his frustration, but he doesn't direct it at God. He just lets us know what's going on. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like, like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But then he goes on in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. See, verse 9, there's a change in direction. And actually, the... The NIV translation is probably not not so helpful. It should probably be translated, he has saved me from the horns of the wild oxen. Probably past tense, he has saved me. But, But by verse 21, we see that God has come to David's aid, that he has done something and saved him from that situation. And what's David's reaction? For the whole rest of the of the psalm, he praises God. And one of the things he says, verse 22, he declares his praise amongst his brothers, amongst the Israelites. Verse 25, he declares God, God's praises to the assembly. And what does he say about God? Verse 24, he does not look down on those that suffer. Verse 26, God provides. Verse 28, God has all the authority. And verse 30, everyone should hear of God's goodness. Now just from a first reading, there is much to learn from this, from this psalm, even before we skip to the New Testament. I think the key thing to learn is that when we're suffering, God is faithful and trustworthy. When suf- suffering comes, God is faithful and trustworthy. That is what David has experienced and that is what he wants to tell everyone at the end of the psalm. This is what he wants us to know. In those times where we feel abandoned, it is not the case. In fact, it's far from the truth. God is active and faithful in those times. In the times that we feel most distant from God, God is most present. In the times that we feel most distant from God, God is the most present. But I bet you've been thinking, you know, this is obviously, this psalm is about Jesus. Well, you know, that, it's got that bit about the bulls and about Jesus being forsaken and the, the nailing, you know, his hands and his feet are pierced. It's, it's clearly about Jesus. You know, tell us about Jesus, and Come on. I just want to get there quickly. Well, we, we need to understand it in its own context first, which we've done. But with any passage like that, we, it, we need to understand what did it mean to its original hearers. And it's a psalm about David. David has gone through this and he wants to tell us something. But it is also a prophetic psalm. The New Testament writers pick up on this idea that it's prophetic in that it's about Jesus. Turn with me to Mark 15 and I'm going to read the whole chapter. I know it's kind of mid-afternoon, the Olympics are on, it's a good time to have a snooze. But turn to Mark 15. I don't want you to be caught up in the details of the story. Let, let it wash over you. 
uh, if you feel like closing your eyes, don't go to sleep, but it might help you to uh, un- kind of listen a bit better. So Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast, feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of charge of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their head and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They crucified with him, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with with vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women, were, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, 
the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women, women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And it goes on to talk about Jesus' uh, burial. Now, there are a lot of similarities there. And as you're reading it, you're kind of thinking, wow, this is, this is quite interesting. Now, how does this work? And if you have a look back in Psalm 22, pretty much verses 12 to 18 of the psalm sound exactly what Mark is describing here, Mark 15. It talks about the bulls encircling, the casting lots for his clothing, the bones out of joint, the pierced hands and feet. Even in back, back in verse 8 of the psalm, he says, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. People are mocking. Let him deliver him since he delights in him pretty much exactly what's happening in verses 29, 30, 31 and 32 in Mark 15. There are some clear parallels between the two, aren't there? Some things common in both. Now, I don't think it's an accident that those two are there. I think Mark is a brilliant author and he picks up on some of these ideas. It's, It's called intertextuality. Sounds like a really fancy word that people that don't really believe in the Bible use but it is, a, it's a, it is a proper word intertextuality it just means that one author picks up on some of the ideas that another author has used and that's what Mark is doing he wants us to understand his writing in light of Psalm 22 he wants us to go back and read Psalm 22 and understand what, it's, what has been happening in the, in the atonement with Jesus from Psalm 22 you know, why is that the whole way through, there's not, not kind of any clear mention of God or of the psalm until we get right to Jesus' own words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What often New Testament writers would do, they would kind of quote just a, a snippet of an Old Testament passage so it would make us go back and read the whole chunk and find out what the whole thing that they're talking about. And that's what's happening here. What is it that Mark wants us to know? What's the significance of Mark picking up on on Psalm 22? I think it's that even in the times where we feel most distant from God, God is the most present. I think it's the same thing going on in both. Where God feels most distant, God is the most present. There is no mention of God in all of Mark 15 up until Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the point in history where we're thinking that God has to be the most present but there's not even one word about God there. Isn't that... But isn't that what, what we're trying to read there? Isn't it that... Jesus has been abandoned on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why haven't you forsaken me? Isn't that what Jesus is articulating? Isn't that the point of what he's saying? Well, I I don't think so. In all biblical writing where there is no mention of God, where it seems that God couldn't be further away, where it seems that God is nowhere, God is actually the most present, if that's possible. He's everywhere. The book of Esther is a supreme example. In the book of Esther, the word God or any reference to God is, there is absolutely none. The whole book. And you're thinking, how can this book of the Bible be in the Bible? It doesn't even mention God. Isn't the Bible about God? But that's the point of Esther. God is nowhere. 
but God is everywhere, ordaining all of these things to happen. I think Mark is kind of doing the same thing. He's a brilliant author. God seems so distant, yet he is ultimately present. See, at Jesus' loneliest point, God is most present and active. This has been God's plan from the very beginning, from the very first, let there be in Genesis, to this point, this has been on God's mind. All of history, all of creation has been heading to this point. And what do we see? We see God in all his glory. Philippians 2 talks about God humbling himself, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. See, the Father has not abandoned the Son. But what is happening? The Father is actively punishing the Son. The Son who is the anointed one. The Son who is the rightful King of everything. The Son who is righteous, the one who deserves praise and God's blessing. What is happening here? He is the one that has been scorned. He is the one that is having God's blessing withheld the very one that deserves to be glorified in, the very one that deserves, deserves God's blessing is the one that is being punished. It's receiving God's wrath in its full. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. You have saved me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Those words on Jesus' lips push us back to Psalm 22 and see the final outcome. It's like reading the last chapter of a book, if you've ever done that. I usually do that with Harry Potter. Kind of, what's going to happen? Oh, Dumbledore died. Oh, no. Sorry, if you're not a Harry Potter fan if I just ruined everything for you. But it's like reading the last chapter of the book and finding out kind of how we got there. You know, or uh, it's like I often do that, kind of watching the outcome of a game and then watching the, the game afterwards. It's always like watching a Black Caps game. You know what's going to happen. It's going to end in disappointment. Except when they played Australia, I have to say that. But we see the final outcome in Psalm 22 is triumph through suffering. What was the outcome for David? What was it that David learnt through his suffering? Even in suffering, even when God feels so distant, he isn't. Through suffering, David was able to bring, bring praise to God and others to bring praise as well. Through death, Jesus does the same thing. He is not abandoned to the grave, but the righteous one who freely gives up his life. The one that does not deserve death is the one that conquers it. And he does. And he brings us to praise God with him. Now as we think about applying these texts, uh, the best thing that we can do, as with any text, is not to initially ask, what do, we, what do I need to do about this? 
I think the best thing to do is to firstly ask, uh, the, firstly ask the question, what do we learn about God? It's always, uh, rather than making it about us, I think we need to keep making it about God. What do we learn about God from these passages? And I think there are two things, and I think they're connected. So the first thing that we see is that God is in control. God is perfectly and fully in control of all things. It's not just some abstract thing that you say when you know, your, a friend loses their job. Oh, God's sovereign. It's okay. If you deeply and utterly believe that God is in control, then it changes absolutely everything about how you live. If God isn't, isn't in control, then that changes everything. It means that we should worry about our lives. Did you know that the phrase, don't worry appears ten times just in the Gospels. And it's always with, because God is in control of it. But if we are sure that God is in control, then we have nothing to worry about. We know that God loves us. We've seen that in the cross. And even in the toughest moments, we know that he's bringing all things for our good and for his glory. Ultimately, worrying is ungodly. It's sinful. When someone doesn't trust you, you know, and doesn't listen to you, it kind of cuts to your heart, doesn't it? Well, for me, I know that I'm pretty untrustworthy anyway, so it's not too bad, but I'm sure you guys aren't like that. What is it that you have worried about this week? It might be finances, it might be family, job, relationships, health, study, kids, whatever it has been. We all need to say sorry to God and trust him enough to rule that part of our lives and let him be God over it. Now often people think that if we believe too strongly in God's sovereignty, then that means I shouldn't need to act. You know, kind of an ultimate form of laziness. You know, God's sovereign, I'll just sit around all day and play computer games. You know, you know, if it's God's will to happen, then it will happen. I don't think that's biblical. I think that's just kind of, that's fatalism, not sovereignty. I love the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Some of you may have seen it. It's got Will Ferrell in it, but it's not really a a typical Will Ferrell movie. Uh, In it, he plays, this is why I like it, he plays an auditor. I love auditors. I used to be one. But he works works for the tax department, kind of, and his assignment is to go and uh, audit this baker, and he goes and starts auditing her. But he hears his voice in his head narrating everything. And he thinks he's going crazy. So he goes and sees a psychologist and, and she's like, yep, you're crazy. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not. No, yes, you are crazy. That's the symptom, you know, it's kind of the symptoms. And so he's convinced that he isn't. So he goes and sees an English professor, uh, and, which is Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman tells him, if, if this is true... If you're not crazy, then just go sit at home and do absolutely nothing. Don't answer the phone. Don't change the channel on the TV. Just sit at home. So what does he do? He goes and sits at home all day. He's sitting there. Nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, a crane wipes out most of his apartment. And he goes back and sees the English professor and says, you're not crazy. Something's going on here. And we kind of hear the rest of the narration of the story. It's a good movie. But that's fatalism, isn't it? You're just sitting here doing absolutely nothing. When we believe properly in God's sovereignty, it shouldn't just be about sitting and doing nothing. I think it does the opposite. It should push us the other way. 
It should push us to act because we know that our actions are working out within God's sovereignty, working out within his will, which is much more powerful. The second thing that I think we learn about God is his presence in suffering. I'm sure some of you love that poem. Uh, I think it's called Footprints in the Sand. I'm not really a big fan of that poem, I have to say. Not very sentimental guy. Don't have any pictures of kittens with Bible verses underneath them at home. Maybe on a dartboard somewhere. But anyway. But the image that we get, I think, from that... If you, if you don't know the poem, it's okay. I'll skip through quickly. But the image we get there, I think, is quite helpful. That in the toughest times, I think that God does bring us comfort and does carry us through. When you suffer, what is your natural reaction? Is it to thank God for what you're going through? Thanks, God, I really needed this. I really needed to trust you. Thanks. This is awesome. I really need to learn humility and patience. Thanks, God, you're the best. It's never that, is it? I've never said that. You know, when, we first, when we suffer, the first thing we say is, God, I devote myself to you. I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I'm a good person. Why are you making me go through this? What have I done to deserve this? You know, God, what are you doing? It's always my reaction. But it shows my heart. Who am I truly serving? Am I serving God or am I serving myself? When we say those things, I think it it really does reveal us uh, and who we're truly serving. It reveals that we're serving ourselves. God, I'll serve you as long as it leads to a trouble-free life. God, I'll serve you as long as I can get something out of it. You know, we might not say it with our mouth, but we, we end up saying it by our reaction. You know, if that's what you're after, then you're not really serving God. We need to change our thinking and see that we're serving ourselves. You know, God is still God in suffering. When you do suffer, be prepared to ask God, what is it that you want to teach me through this? In what way do you want me to grow? Lord, how is it that you are being glorified in this? You know, sometimes we will never get that answer and that is hard. But it's then that we'll see that this is a God worth serving. That he is a good God and even in suffering he is doing what is right for you. Well, the second question I think we need to ask is what do we learn about Jesus? Well, ultimately we learn from, this, from the psalm and from Mark 15 that he is the fulfilment of God's plan. He's prophesied about and he does bring about that fulfilment. He is the ordained one that came to suffer, to take on the sin of the world. But that suffering doesn't end in death and despair. Through suffering, through death, Jesus brings life and hope and relief from suffering. His suffering brings healing. I think that's, that's the most glorious thing about understanding the cross and the resurrection. Through death and through his resurrection, he gives life. He brings healing to us. The one who suffered ultimately 
is the one that ultimately provides a healing from suffering. So the one that ultimately suffered in bearing God's wrath is the one that can ultimately provide healing from suffering. Well, lastly, we can think about what do these passages teach us about us? Now, I don't think either passage really speaks very positively about humanity. Psalm 22, David screams at God just like we do and and it turns out that he's wrong. But the good thing is that God allows him to do that, that kind of screaming, which I think is shows how sovereign and how big God is that he allows that to happen. Mark 15, you know, humanity rises up and kills their God. He kill, they kill the God King. What is it that we learn about humanity? I think both say the same thing. We think that we're the gods. We think that we have the full perspective. We think that God doesn't know what he's doing and that we do. It's easy for me to say, I'll serve God with everything. There is nothing that I'm going to withhold from God. Things are going okay at the moment. It's easy for me to say that, isn't it? But when things start to go wrong, it's much, much harder. If I said to you, tomorrow God was going to take something away from you that you dearly love, it's hypothetical, what's the thing that pops in your head? God's going to take away something from you that you dearly love. Whatever it is, is your reaction, please don't do that, God? Is it utter fear that God will actually do that? Or is it, just as Jesus says before his death, your will and not mine? See, in all likelihood, God won't take something away from you that you dearly love tomorrow because he's a good God. I'm not prophesying anything here. But we learn from, this, from these, both these passages is that we, ne- we need to let God be God. We're not in control, he is. And to let God be God means saying, your will and not mine. And boy, that's scary. But I think it's also freeing. And my hope for me and for you is that you will be able to say that at all times. Your will and not mine. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We see that you are the one who has brought all things together under your Son. We see that you do not withhold him How could we ever doubt that you are good? How could we ever doubt that you are not doing what is right for us? But Lord, help us to see in those times where things are hard that we can trust in you. Lord, those times are hard and you know that. And we just pray, Lord, that we would be willing to say your will and not ours. Lord, we pray that we'd be able to say that at all times, that you would push us to trust you, to know you, to serve you and to love you. And Lord, we just pray that as we go out this week that we would want to do that with every breath and every moment of our lives. Amen.